Are you kids ready to party? Clap your hands and stomp your feet. Give me something good to eat. Yum, yum, nom, nom, toot, toot, poop. First the food goes in your mouth, then it starts to travel south. Yum, yum, nom, nom, Hi, everyone. Welcome to the July 11th ASF Weekly Science Podcast, and let's talk about poop. On today's podcast, I want to take a little extra time with you to share what was discussed and what was learned from the Candid meeting a month ago. You can all watch the presentations online at candidgi.com, and I encourage you to do it. The link will be in the podcast summary. CANDID stands for Consortium of Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders and Digestive Diseases. I first want to say that GI issues and problems are not a core symptom of autism. We all know that. But they're more common in those with autism, more so than the general population. The numbers are anywhere between 30 and 70 percent, depending on who you ask and how you ask it. So while it may not be a core symptom of autism, GI symptoms, and I'm not talking about mild diarrhea here, is debilitating and sometimes a fatal comorbid condition, and it needs to be addressed, which is why ASF worked together with other organizations to put together the Candid meeting to begin with. The goals of the meeting were to inform the community, both the scientific and family members, of the scope of the problem, discuss how these problems are assessed and diagnosed, provide education to pediatric gastroenterologists who are on the front lines, but some who don't know how to treat these complex cases involving a neurodevelopmental disorder. And we wanted to come to some sort of plan on what the priorities for research should be and how to tackle them. The other organizers were the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation, the International CDKL5 Foundation, and Indiana University. Now, the first task was to help the larger community understand the severity of the problem. We asked parents of children with severe GI issues, including but not limited to constipation, reflux, pain, diarrhea, and feeding issues. And when I say about feeding issues, I'm not talking about picky eating. And I'm not talking about what some people refer to as tummy troubles, the kind of thing that you might just take Tums for. I'm talking about feeding tubes because kids can't digest food. I don't want to exaggerate or minimize these problems, so I'm going to share some of what the families told us in the presentations. Again, go to CandidGI.com to see the full video. One mother talked about how her child was not eating and vomiting profusely and had to be hospitalized. Not only was that painful, He could not go to school, and he could not go out with other kids. He really couldn't do anything other than be in his house or his grandparents' house. This was painful, debilitating, and yes, it causes suffering. He was in so much pain, he would scratch his face. And this is this type of autism you don't see on TV. Another parent describes that their daughter's constipation was so bad, they have a tube going into her GI system where a laxative can be administered so she can have a bowel movement. That's how bad it was. She had one tube that provided food, and the other just allows her to go to the bathroom. And if that does not happen, she has seizures. Another parent reported that her daughter was crying and screaming so much that she couldn't get out of the house. She couldn't communicate, and she ended up exhibiting self-injurious behaviors. Now, I'm not saying every case of self-injury is the cause of GI pain, 
but in this case, it was. Dealing with chronic constipation and pain takes two to four hours out of her day, and seizure medications, on top of everything else, exacerbate GI issues. So what do you do? Do you treat the seizures or do you minimize the GI problems? The parents of all of these individuals also had autism and a genetic syndrome. Many of these families were told that there was nothing they could do by their doctors because they didn't know how to help a child with ASD or neurodevelopmental disorders. Now, this is why we had the meeting. The first scientific session focused on the links between neurodevelopmental disorders and GI symptoms. Dr. Andres Jimenez Gomez from Joe DiMaggio's Children's Hospital and Dr. Kent Williams presented how the brain interacts with the GI system, either through connections in neurons or through chemicals like serotonin or other neuropeptides or other mechanisms. The interaction between the brain and the gut, the gut refers to the whole stomach area, including the liver and pancreas, has to do with sensory problems. For example, like understanding the pressure that precedes a bowel movement. And it also understands the link about how these sensory problems trigger a learned complex behavior. Those with intellectual disability may not be able to learn this association. Constipation seems to be the most dominant GI symptom from about 60% of people, and that was based on multiple small studies, but it wasn't the only one based on previous studies. These issues could include pain, feeding issues, and swallowing. Constipation, as families mentioned, seems to exacerbate behavior problems like irritability, aggression, and self-harm. Sometimes the behaviors get better if GI symptoms are alleviated, sometimes not. Kids with constipation and neurodevelopmental disorders have far more ER visits and inpatient admissions. Those that come in with ASD and GI are more likely to be admitted into the hospital compared to those without ASD. And this chronic constipation leads to long-term differences in the size and the shape and the function of the intestines. Now, different animal models of rare genetic disorders associated with ASD have shown a difference in constipation and reflux and gastric motility. And I'll talk to that about that at the very end when Julia Dahlman from University of Miami talked. So why is there this link? Apparently, restrictive and repetitive behaviors are linked to constipation as well as anxiety and sensory issues. These things are common in neurodevelopmental disorders. Now, fussy eating is related to constipation and also to sensory behavioral issues. So this could be a chicken or the egg. Many parents say that their kids get so freaked out at the prospect of having a painful bowel movement that seeing the bathroom is a trigger for an explosive episode. The sensory issues may play a role in the treatment too. If they take Miralax and then they have a painful bowel movement, then they're going to associate the Miralax with that pain so they don't take the Miralax. The G-tube or the feeding tube directly into the stomach seems to really help. And when the GI symptoms do improve, so do behavioral features. Again, not in everyone, not completely, but to an extent. And for this community, a little bit is a lot. These G-tubes can be lifesavers as well. Dr. Catherine Motiel from Baylor presented on how feeding and nutrition issues can cause growth abnormalities in girls with Rett syndrome. And G-tubes at least help with getting that nutrition in. Kara Gross-Margulis of Columbia University shared similar cases of an individual who developed diarrhea and exhibited severe GI pain, including banging on the chest, 
and also developed severe OCD behaviors and catatonic behavior, which improved when GI symptoms were helped. Now, one thing she wanted to get across to other clinicians is the symptoms of GI issues are greatly different in individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders, and they need to be recognized. Gut problems are related to mood, behaviors, and cognition. She brought in the concept of the microbiome. Now, this is the colony of bacteria that live in the GI system or the gut, and that helps with digestion of food and then extracting nutrition for normal growth and development. She mentioned three particular areas of interest for the gut-brain connection, serotonin, the immune system, and bacterial molecules or the gut microbiome. Now, the microbiome is different in each person, so it's like a fingerprint. It's a delicate balance of bacteria that's different from person to person. The problem with research so far is that there are so many differences across people in their microbiome, it's hard to develop an ASD microbiome profile, so to speak. There doesn't seem to be a specific profile. The heterogeneity of autism also prevents the way the development of any one biomarker is identified for any one thing anyway. So it's not really a big shocker that the complex microbiome of the bacteria isn't really able to show a singular profile. But even if there are multiple profiles of microbiome issues, how do you treat that? Do you start with a probiotic? Which gut bacteria should you target because there are trillion in your gut and dozens can be changed in each person with autism? This has been a challenge so far, and it really hasn't led to any solid answers. Now, I love me an Activia yogurt, but that doesn't mean it has the right bacteria to help GI issues and neurodevelopmental disorders. One thing that can be adapted to help the microbiome is diet. And of course, diet affects the microbiome, which then can lead to GI issues. Not to say diet is the only thing going on or the only thing that needs to change. It's certainly not a silver bullet, but it is something. And this is why G-tubes can be so helpful in individuals with severe GI issues. You can administer a high fiber diet. You can reduce things like sugar and dairy and rice, and you can affect total food intake. She described a study of a multi-omics analysis of gut-brain microbiome disease. It's done at four centers. It's currently ongoing. It looks at behavioral assessments, GI assessments, a food diary, and a stool specimen for the microbiome. And then it looked at multi-omic analysis. For, for example, which bugs in the microbiome correlate with GI issues and other medical issues? She's found increases in behavioral challenges associated with GI symptoms across all groups, ASD, typical development, and siblings. Some of the behavioral variables like sensory seeking and compulsivity are associated with different microbiome, but this is early studies. Food variety did seem to help with associated microbiome difference in a residential setting on a farm where more food variety was available. Dr. Margulis said exactly what I believe. We need more prospective longitudinal studies to look at changes over time and effects of different interventions across that time in the same person. So in the next session, Dr. Joseph Crawfee from Indiana University and Dr. Baha Moshiri talked about detection and monitoring of GI distress. In kids with NDDs, this is especially hard. Putting tubes in different orifices, an inability to describe symptoms, 
swallowing problems, difficult understanding what needs to be done, and comorbid conditions like respiratory problems pose a huge problem to procedures that need to be done. Ding dong! Pediatric gastroenterologists are supposed to help all children and they can't because of some of these issues. They need a little bit of support and training to work with families where there may be more challenging behaviors that make some of these diagnostics harder to do. Some of the procedures required for those with NDDs include swallowing fluid like barium, which is kind of hard if someone has a swallowing issue. They require kids to sit still, to be sedated, to get an enema, or to put radioactive substances down their throat. They include a scan. They need sedation. And sometimes this sedation doesn't need to be done in typically developing people. And let's face it, if any of us have ever had a GI procedure, these things are not fun. So imagine having to do it on someone that has no clue on what is going on or why. For example, let's take the example of putting a catheter down the nose of the throat of a patient and asking that patient to swallow. That's one of the ways gastric reflux is diagnosed. This is so challenging. This person has to be able to control their swallowing. Now for GI dysmotility, they have to be sedated and then moved and then they wake up with machines hooked up to them and they have to sit still for six hours. Yeah, yeah, right. This is hard for people without neurodevelopmental disorders. Just think about those with neurodevelopmental disorders. And don't get me started on this test called an anal monometry, which requires the person to measure resting and anal pressures and the dynamics of defecation. The person needs to understand what is being asked of them and then do it. And a lot of these kids would fail this completely. These tests may not work in people with neurodevelopmental disorders. We need better because these traditional diagnostic procedures are not feasible. So, so far I've referred to kids and children. What about adults? Everyone is someone's child, and so I don't really care about the term kids or children, but so far most of the studies that I've reported have to do with children, but these problems continue into adulthood. As a matter of fact, 25% of children treated for constipation continue to have symptoms in adulthood. Baha Moshiri not only described GI issues in adults, but nicely laid out the gaps in research that will lead to treatments. She mentioned there are some objective measures like colonoscopy, a transit study which uses radio-opaque markers, and a new wireless motility capsule, which is a pill that can be swallowed and tracked. And then there's also mammometry, which was already mentioned. Dr. Crawfee explained this as a test for reflexes in the anal area. There's a balloon expulsion test, which puts a small balloon inserted into the rectum and the patient tries to expel it. These are obviously problematic for people with neurodevelopmental disorders for obvious reasons. Now stool, si now, stool diaries are also important as well. The three that are most important in the work with people with neurodevelopmental disorders are a colonoscopy, blood work, a stool diary, and the anal rectal mammography. There's also a gastric emptying scan which evaluates for GERD, in addition to that pH probe mentioned earlier, these are not fun. Again, you need to know what it's being used for and why it's being done, or it's just a torture, it's experiment for these people. So what is needed? 
patient-reported outcomes. We need to look at upper and lower GI symptoms at the same time. We need to address the lack of specificity of diagnostic testing or consensus for neurodevelopmental disorders. There's obviously a lack of well-trained GI clinicians and pediatric pediatric gastroenterologists. And there's no treatment algorithm for people with neurodevelopmental disorders and even fewer funded studies. One of the things she mentioned was an app, mobile apps to classify stool samples. First, there's a app to classify stool images. I know, it sounds weird. You take a picture and it captures the stool image in real time and can tell the consistency and the volume for the clinician. This may sound crazy, but this is something parents struggle with. They don't necessarily know how to look at things like consistency and volume and compare them. Another method was mentioned in collaboration with Julia Dahlman at University of Miami to help caretakers track symptoms. She and Dr. Dahlman are also studying a blue muffin that people can eat that can track gastrointestinal motility. This assay can be done at home and it involves meal components to match a meal for a gastric syntagraphy. They're legitimately blue muffins. Kids will eat them. And after they eat them, parents can track transit time by seeing when the blue comes out of the poop. They also track diet, stool forms and frequency, as well as blood samples. This is a scalable tool for epidemiological assessment, but it should not be done only by itself. It needs to be done in conjunction with other things. So Dr. Dahlman talked about harnessing the power of model systems in non-invasive ways to collect human data, and I mentioned this at the beginning. She looks at fish, yeah, fish, specifically zebrafish, to understand which specific gene mutations are important and how they affect GI motility. When zebrafish eat, you can actually see the contractions of the food moving down the GI tract, its motility. And those fish with gene mutations like Syngap and Shank3, which causes PMS, the contractions are not as coordinated, indicating these genes, which also affect neurodevelopmental disorders, can affect digestion. I really want you to go on the Candid GI website and go to Dr. Julia Dahlman's presentation because you can actually see this happening in real time. She provided videos. She can quantify the motility across the upper and lower digestive tract by looking at pixel displacement. And she can see the propagations of time and space and rhythmicity of contractions in the fish with or without a genetic mutation. They are disorganized in those with genetic mutations, as well as whole gut transit time. She also noted that the genes associated with NDDs like MECP2, P10, ADNP, UBE3, ARID, DERK1A, FMR, FOXP1, PMS, CATNAP, and CDKL5 and norexin are also expressed in the gut and transmit information from inside the gut, and then transmit that information to active gut muscle or intestinal muscle, which causes muscle contraction. So what happens when they are mutated or not expressed properly? Well, you guessed it. In fish, they affect gut motility, but then when you remove the function, you also see a loss of cells in the GI system. You can also look at calcium indicators to see how active those cells are to nutrients. And this effect is deficient in Syngap mutant fish. So they're not able to pull nutrients from food as well. 
Fewer cells are active and a reduced sensitivity to the neuron in the gut to nutrients is present. So of course, this could be related to sensory processing in the GI system. Finally, Dr. Moshiri mentioned patient reported outcomes, but which ones? Which measures are being used to track symptoms and improvement over time in people? Is there a standard for those with neurodevelopmental disorders? So when you want an expert, you ask an expert. And that's what we did with Dr. Calliope Holing from Johns Hopkins, who wrote a paper reviewing all of them and why they all sucked. She didn't say they all sucked. I'm saying they all sucked. Those were my words, not her words, just for clarification. So don't come for her, come for me. Actually, she was much more judicious about her terms. She described that symptoms are things that are described by a person feeling them, and signs are the things that are observed by someone else. So in a perfect world, scientists could get both signs and symptoms, and they would match. But this doesn't always happen. For example, if someone can't express what is going on, If the child just beats on their stomach, yeah, that's probably stomach pain, but what type? Where is it coming from? And are there other signs? She indicated that the tools that are used have not always been validated in people with neurodevelopmental disorders and those across the spectrum. She was able to report out mostly what was in the literature, and it was also published in a 2018 paper where she's a first author. She mentioned that there are mostly parent-reported pediatric questionnaires. The type of assessment approach may influence the estimate of the symptom or sign frequency. And these measures have been validated in those without a neurodevelopmental disorder, but how do you make sure they're useful in those with a neurodevelopmental disorder? So she's working on a gastrointestinal and related behavior inventory called the GIRBI, led by Dr. Tim Bowie from MassGen and Dr. Colleen Lukens and Dr. Holing. They talked to families and they found that children with autism have difficulty verbally communicating the presence of GI symptoms, so parents have to rely on detecting bodily signs and nonverbal behaviors like sleep issues and aggression. The new GIRBI included specific GI symptoms, frequency of bowel movements and stool consistency, mealtime dietary behaviors, motor and other behaviors like arching their back, which is a common exhibition of pain, and gritting their teeth to avoid eating. It also included a parent report. Because again, it would be great to get all of these perspectives and it would be great if they matched, but sometimes they don't. They piloted this questionnaire in 334 families with kids from six to 17 years of age. They found that it well aligned with items on the child behavior checklist. And since it was developed with stakeholders, it had high content validity. The specificity was lower, though, but the sensitivity was high. This means that it does a good job of picking up GI issues, but it doesn't rule out that someone who does not have a GI issues that has other problems that may result in some of these same behaviors. The next steps, incorporation of biospecimens and creation of multiple versions to reach people across the spectrum and the lifespan. Self-report and caregiver report versions are in progress. And she reiterated the need for both patient outcome data and laboratory and biological measures. Now, there's a lot to do. We want to use the Candid website, again, candidgi.com, as a central place where information can be found, including research and articles to download, studies that can be posted so people can participate in, including that Blue Muffin study, 
and scientific information that can be shared for scientists that are not themselves gastroenterologists but want to help families get there and understand what's going on in the families they serve. We're also going to have three work groups and we'll let you know after they meet what their direction is going to be. I realize this is an extra long podcast this week. Sorry about that. You got a week off for the 4th of July last week. But please go to CandidGI.com to watch these videos. We're excited to share them. And again, we also want to thank the sponsors, including the organizers I mentioned, as well as NIH, who helped support the meeting, Cure Shank, iDefine, Ring 14 USA, Axial Pharmaceuticals, and Billy Bennett at Indiana University. And of course, all the speakers that I mentioned here that made the meeting such a success. Now, on to the next phase of work. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week. Yum, yum, nom, nom, toot, toot, poop. First the food goes in your mouth, then it starts to travel south. Yum, yum.